And all the way down, it listed six or eight executives. Not a single one owned any shares. And I said, uh-oh, this doesn't look right. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Dr. David Cass. Dr. David Cass, I'm going to call you David. David, are you ready to join the mission? I am, and thanks very much for having me. It's good to have you, and I love your first name because that is my father's first name, David. Oh. <laughs> oh. Good. I'm going to introduce you to the audience. Dr. David Cass received his PhD in business economics from Harvard University and has published articles in corporate finance, industrial organization, and health economics. He currently teaches advanced financial management. Before joining the Smith School faculty in 2004, he held senior positions with the federal government. Dr. Cass has been featured on many different TV shows like Bloomberg, CNBC, and Wharton Business Radio, and many others, where he's primarily discussing about Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, The Economy, and the stock market. He's also launched a Smith School Warren Buffett blog, and Dr. Cass has accompanied MBA students on trips to Omaha for private meetings with Warren Buffett and finance fellows to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings. Dr. Cass received a Smith School Top 15% Teaching Award, a Distinguished Teaching Award, and the prestigious Crow Teaching Award on two occasions. David, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, uh... What I view right now, and I think is my most valuable contribution, is conferring onto my students lessons that I've learned throughout my life, working many years in federal government, four different major government agencies. And I was there as a PhD economist. Uh, I joined the federal government right after my PhD. And then after many years there, I took an early retirement from the federal government. And I was very grateful to the University of Maryland, the Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland, to give me an opportunity to teach, which actually was my original goal in life professionally that I put off for a couple of decades or a few decades, I suppose. And what I enjoyed doing and what I feel was most worthwhile since I uh, have been working as an economist many years and now teaching many years, I'm now actually entering my 20th year teaching at the University of Maryland at the Smith School of Business. And I have gathered much information as we all do as we get older, and I'm able to have the opportunity to confer some of my, hopefully my wisdom, experience, lessons learned, such as what mistakes to avoid along the way, and to be able to give the students a very good overview as well as specific information to sort of expand on various issues as I teach corporate finance, basically. I, I currently teaching undergraduate students, juniors and seniors, finance majors at the Smith School to sort of illustrate, and in my case, since I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett, to sort of confer lessons from Warren Buffett and incorporate them into my lessons every day. In fact, I joke with my students, that I tell them that part of my written contract is to mention Warren Buffett's name at least once each class. And it turns <laughs> out that I probably do. And here are lessons from Warren Buffett as well as my own life mm. uh, to bring that in so the students can uh, learn. And I try to uh, learn lessons that I'm teaching a little more clearly, and maybe to place them in historical context, and as well as to place them in the world in, in terms of current events, how current events could relate to what has happened in the past, and what could we learn from the past that might, might apply to the present and the future. So I really feel that my main contribution 
to society, you might say, is what I can confer onto this now maybe more than one generation of students for, for now 20 years. So hopefully they can benefit from my experience, education, knowledge, et cetera. Hopefully that's being useful to them going forward. Well, I'm sure it has been useful. I know what was useful for me was listening to an interview that you did with We Study Billionaires, which was a great interview. But the first thing I thought about, because you tell the story of how you first took students or went with students to see Warren Buffett. And I thought to myself, hey, that was a reverse takeover or that was a backdoor listing. And that's because it wasn't your original idea, someone else's idea. And then one of the students, maybe you could tell that story of how you first got to take students to meet with Warren Buffett. Yes, it was my first year teaching at the University of Maryland at Smith School. I started teaching there the fall of 2004. And it was early in 2005 that I noticed there was a poster on a bulletin board in the main lobby of the business school where a student was advertising for other students to join him on a trip to Omaha, Nebraska, where Berkshire Hathaway is based, to meet privately with Warren Buffett. And there was a specific date, and I still remember the day. It was May 23rd, 2005. And anyone who wanted to go could go, both undergraduate as well as MBA graduate students. And I looked at it and I said, oh, wow, I'm a longtime fan of Warren Buffett. I, up until that point, I probably read every book written about Buffett. So I contacted the student at the telephone number or that the student provided. And I called him and I said, this may be a little bit an inverse way of doing it. And I said, do you need a faculty advisor? Can I perhaps accompany you on your trip and provide some assistance to you? And then I explained to him that I had a strong background and interest in Warren Buffett. We discussed that a little for a little while and he said, sure. And then we had I had to get approval of my chairman for this to go happen. And I did. And I, plus another colleague, accompanied 50 students to Omaha for this trip. And it was the year was 2005. It was the first year that Warren Buffett started to meet with college students around the country. And according to his annual report the following year in his letter to shareholders, he mentioned that 2005 was indeed his first time meeting with students. And he mentioned when he met with students from something like 15 to 18 different universities during that year. And indeed, when we went out there, we had a private meeting with him. He answered student questions. He then took us to lunch, and we had the opportunity to pose for pictures with him as well. Incredible. And he's really so down-to-earth friendly. He loves students. Right? He has said if he was not running a stock portfolio or a business, his second career choice would have been a professor. He loves teaching. He loves teaching students. Mm. That's so fascinating. And I, you know, the other thing that you talked about was a mistake that he made that continued to compound. And yes. I thought that would be a fun one if you could explain a mistake that, you know, Warren Buffett made that, as you said, and he says, continues to compound. And then after that, we'll get into your mistake. Right. There are a couple of major mistakes that he made. One was Dexter Shue. The acquisition of Dexter Shue several years ago, and the mistake he made, instead of paying, say, a few hundred million dollars for the purchase of the company in cash, the mistake he made was paying for it with Berkshire stock. And Dexter Shue itself went bankrupt several years later, but the shares that he paid in Berkshire kept compounding in value. So over the years, what may have been a $350 million, something like that acquisition, recently may have been worth about $8 billion or something like that in Berkshire stock. And it keeps, mistake keeps compounding. 
as Berkshire Hathaway stock keeps hitting new all-time highs. Recently, Berkshire just hit the Berkshire A shares, recently passed $550,000 a share, an all-time high. And uh, it has compounded, and incidentally, it has compounded in, in value. It, it has grown 20% per year compounded since 1965 when Berkshire was acquired by Warren Buffett. And over the same time period, the S&P 500 has compounded by roughly 10%. And the difference in compounding at 10% versus uh, 20% is, is huge. That's why Warren Buffett is one of the wealthiest people in the world, worth Certainly, he would have been worth more than $100 billion. He's worth close to $100 billion now. He's already given away a large percentage of his wealth to charity in the form of Berkshire stock. And that's an example of illustrating how his Dexter shoe mistake has compounded and keeps growing larger every day. And that just to clarify that for the listener. So what that means is that when the person or the company that was selling the shares in Dexter basically instead of receiving cash they receive these shares and then they yes. said see you have the business make what you can of dexter's shoes and i'll see you later i'll hold on to this this share of berkshire hathaway and so there's the the lucky recipient of that instead of that person just receiving cash and they're going to do whatever they want they received a golden ticket basically exactly right exactly right hmm. Yeah. And of course, a second major mistake that Warren Buffett made was his initial investment in Berkshire Hathaway itself, which is a basically a failing textile company in the 1960s. Warren Buffett early on had purchased shares in Berkshire Hathaway. It was a New England textile company. And he reached an agreement with the CEO of that company to sell back the shares at a certain price. And then when the contract appeared with the agreement, the CEO decided to lower the price by you know, a few cents a share. And Buffett was so upset that he was being cheated that his, uh, I guess, being very young at the time, well, I guess he would have been 35 years old, roughly. He was born in 1930. So this is 19, roughly 65. He's 35 years old. So he decided, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to turn around and buy his company, and then I'm going to fire him. I'll teach him <laughs> a lesson. So he buys, basically, he goes in, buys this company. He's able to fire the CEO, and then he takes the name Berkshire Hathaway for his own company, his own business. He borrows the name. But then he learns the hard way that Berkshire Hathaway was indeed a failing textile business that basically went bankrupt over time. So from an investment point of view, it was basically another big mistake, but one made out of emotion. Mm. And something, you know, Buffett has always argued that one of the key characteristics of successful investors is your temperament. You could be very smart. But if you're not emotionally balanced, let's say you, you overreact on the upside as well as the downside, you probably will not succeed. And at a recent Berkshire annual meeting, he's, he basically said, we at Berkshire don't, a shareholder asked him, this was this past May, I was at the annual mm. meeting in Omaha, a shareholder asked him, do you ever make, you and Charlie Munger, his vice chairman, ever make emotional mistakes and the answer was we make lots of mistakes but we don't make emotional mistakes well he did make one at age 35 when he acquired berkshire hathaway but since mm -hmm. then he's stayed true to form in fact he's he's joked he has said that all you really need is a somewhat above average iq of 125 but you don't need anything more than that but you really once you have that iq of course hard work is this basic temperament unemotional? And he he jokes saying, if you have any IQ, your IQ is higher than one twenty five, you should sell the extra points. You don't need them as an investor. <laughs> They'll only hurt you. You know, I want to grab a book off my shelf while we're talking. 
And this is, I, for the listeners out there, I'm just holding up the Berkshire oh, yeah. Hathaway letters. Yes, yeah, very, very and good. I like this because I can go back and look at his returns. But what was fascinating about Buffett was that in 1976, I believe it was, the share price was up 129%. And then in 1979, it was up 100%. Those are some amazing gains that he made in the 70s. I haven't figured out exactly what were those, but I'm just curious if you have any knowledge or ideas about what was going on in those years or in the 70s for him. Well, I think what was going on, and he and Charlie Munger have made similar comments in a general sense, is, and they basically said it in these words, that they had a, lit, a lot less competition back then. And it was a lot easier back then to find undervalued investments and proceed. In 19, yes, I can expand on the mid-70s specifically what happened. And now, just to follow up on my comment, that today there are indeed, in recent years, very, very smart people who have entered the investment area. It's very competitive, far more difficult to find a undiscovered opportunities. But back in the mid-70s, what happened, there was uh, right after we had, there was an oil embargo in the 1973, oil prices went a Middle East war, an oil embargo, a severe recession, 1974, 75, interest rates went very high, had an inflation problem because of oil, and the stock market was driven way down. I think the the Dow Jones average back then hit a high around in 19 January of 73. It hit 1,000 for the mm. first time. Was today it's uh, considerably higher, 34,000 something like that. But back then it was hit 1,000. And then in December of 1974, as I recall, it was down to 570. It dropped over 40 percent, 570. And the opportunities were phenomenal. So Warren Buffett and Berkshire jumped in among his investments, I think maybe 1973, 74 in that area, a very large stake in the Washington Post company worked very well for him. There were investments he made in American Express. There was a company, Capital Cities Broadcasting, a predecessor of ABC and Disney, et cetera. And there were just wonderful opportunities in wonderful companies as the stock market was just sold off and the psychology was extremely negative. In fact, I remember a cartoon in the Wall Street Journal in 1974. I still remember this, like funny, the funniest financial cartoon I ever saw. The journal got into some trouble because of it. And the cartoon, you had two, two stockbrokers talking to each other. One of them says to the other, uh, as follows, he says, now this is what I call an institutional market. Anyone who invests in this market belongs in an institution. <laughs> and let me tell you, the Wall Street Journal got a lot of feedback. The brokerage industry was not happy. They got a lot of nasty letters that came in. But yeah. I, I couldn't stop laughing when they had that came out. And it really did describe the, the psychological atmosphere at that time, that people were just running away, just dumping stocks. Uh, you had, again, oil prices very high, recession, inflation, and the, the opportunities were just overwhelming or were very bright. And that's where Warren Buffett certainly benefited quite a bit with Berkshire. And it's a good lesson in having the cash and the guts when the market really crashes, because then you can take advantage of that volatility. And all of a sudden, you know, what we often call in the world of finance a risk, which we say volatility is risk. Actually, volatility when the market's down and you've got cash and you've got good skills at picking stocks, that volatility is actually opportunity. Absolutely. And in fact, Warren Buffett has actually criticized, he and Charlie Munger, have actually criticized the business, the standard business school definition of risk, as you mm. mentioned, as volatility, standard deviation, et cetera. He said, no, the real definition of risk 
is the risk that you lose money long term. And he, he's a long term investor, not a short term trader. So, for example, he all he held on to, for example, Washington Post company stock for decades. Mm. And buy in 1974 and sell it a year or two later or a month or two later. It was decades later. And only then when the Washington Post itself was sold. So, so his definition of risk and volatility certainly presents situations where investors might panic. And you know, the general advice is buy low, sell high. And many investors may do the opposite because psychologically it's it's a lot easier to buy something that's going up and it takes a lot more courage maybe to invest in something that's going down. I always teach my students in my valuation masterclass that I do, you know, the the bandwagon effect and how easy it is to join a bandwagon and how hard it is to do an independent action. You know, it's hard for everybody. But I think that's where you talk about the emotional stability and not making emotional mistakes. You know, don't let the the smashing symbols and the boom and the buzz of the bandwagon get you excited that you just go chasing that, you know, thing. Right. No, no, absolutely. One last question before we get into your story is that I was about 10 years old in 1975, and I can remember some of the stuff going on there, not much, but I remember some lines at the gas station and stuff. I was living in Wilmington, Delaware at the time. My dad was working for DuPont. We later moved to Ohio in 1977. And then I just remember, you know, it was a, it was a hard time during that time with inflation and all that. And now you also mentioned that there's a lot of really smart people investing. We've got also the Fed is such a key component compared to the past. How does somebody think about the stock market these days, you know? In some ways, you could think, well, we could be heading for a huge crash, but if the Fed comes in, you know, hey, market goes back up. It just seems like such a different type of market compared to the past. I don't know if you've got some observations or thoughts on that. Well, yes. I Well, basically, I think there's some very key lessons to be learned from the financial crisis fairly recently, 2008. It's 15 years ago. It's not that long ago. It's not ancient financial history. And there, to quote Warren Buffett himself, that we were on the brink. If certain moves weren't made, there was a key weekend in 2008, September 15th. Remember, I think it was Sunday, something like September 15th, 2008. Over that weekend, Lehman Brothers failed. Bank of America acquired Merrill Lynch. And then a large insurance, American AIG. AIG was bailed out, basically, or insured those who had insurance policies were guaranteed, AIG. And Warren Buffett made a comment afterwards, and he said, if Bank of America had not bought out Merrill Lynch on Sunday, it would have failed on Monday. Morgan Stanley would have failed on Tuesday, and Goldman Sachs would have failed on Wednesday. He made some comment very close to that. And we would be right back in a really deep depression, similar to and maybe even worse than the 1930s. And we were lucky that the right people were in the right place doing the right things. The people at Treasury doing the right Congress. Initially, uh, there they, they was an important bill before Congress, I think something like $750 billion to back up the banks. And initially, Congress voted it down. Mm-hmm. And the stock market that day plunged like 5%, 7%, something in that ballpark range. And only, I think, the next day, maybe, that they did pass this bailout bill. Congress, in the end, did the right thing. We had the right people, Ben Bernanke, I guess, at the Federal Reserve, Tim Geithner, and Hank Paulson, cutting across a couple of, several months over at Treasury. We had the right people in the right place doing the right thing. Those are words from Warren Buffett, by the mm. way. Those are Warren Buffett's words. And we came awfully close 
to something, a real serious problem. And fortunately, so even though we're sort of, we should have learned lessons from the past, one thing, fortunately, with Ben Bernanke, Ben Bernanke's PhD thesis at Princeton for his PhD in economics was a history, what caused the Great Depression? Mm. So he was an expert on the Great Depression, and he learned what lessons were learned from it. Now, maybe more money, not less money going into the economy. There were a lot of mistakes made by the Federal Reserve in the early years of the Federal Reserve contributing to the Great mm. Depression. And he made sure that we were not going to, we're going to learn from those mistakes and move forward. So even though if we could say with confidence, well, things look pretty good, the Federal Reserve will jump in, there are still, we came awfully close to total disaster 15 years ago. And then we have the pandemic, the pandemic in 2020. Well, the pandemic comes along, basically, if you look at world history, once every 100 years. Mm -hmm. What do we do? The last pandemic was, I guess, the Spanish, before this one, the Spanish flu of 1918. Mm. Well, you add 100 years to that, make it 102 years, and you get the year 2020. In 1918, we didn't yet have a Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1933 in response to the Great Depression. And so there was no Federal Reserve in 1918. What can we do? To get our economy, everyone is told to quarantine, stay at home. The, the whole economy is shutting down. How do we handle this? We may have learned from previous depressions of when interest rates are high, inflation. We don't have what happens during, we know we survived World War I, World War II, major crises. But how do we get through a pandemic? Mm. What do we do? And fortunately, we were able to work our way through that, courtesy of the Federal Reserve, both monetary and fiscal policy, Congress and the president, a couple of administrations coming through, doing the right thing. So just because we're in pretty good shape today, we've come pretty close over the last 15 years to two major potential disasters. So I think we are learning. We are learning from each experience, we're learning more. I think we're better, we're more sophisticated. I think we'll minimize mistakes going to the future, but new situations will occur and we'll have to deal with them at that time. Yeah, and when you look at the current day, you know, you, you can see the banks, I, I would say, are in much better position. The balance sheets of the banks, I think in the US in particular, but outside of the US also pretty strong and they were tested through COVID. Yes, yes, with the banks, at least in the U.S., and hopefully, I think, around the rest of the world, Western countries and Asia, I think are much better capitalized mm. today than certainly they were 15 years ago during the financial crisis. But certainly the large banks, I think, are far more likely or more able to survive the future crises that may occur. The other thing is that profit margins are very high for companies generally, and particularly, of course, we've got the tech companies that are leading in that, but generally profit margins are pretty strong. And so that also gives a little protection. I guess the the only things that, that remain is, you know, very high interest rates can have an impact, number one, and number two is government debt. And so maybe the next crisis is the dollar rather than something else, or I, I don't know, but it's just incredible the amount of debt. Yes, but there's certainly a lot of government debt. I think there's less debt in the private sector. The financial crisis in the US in 2008, there was much too much debt in the housing market, subprime mortgages, housing prices, a lot of speculation in real estate. And so in the private sector, among consumers, there was much too much debt. Certainly there today, I think the amount of debt in, in the U.S., in the corporate sector, private sector, I think is reasonable. But yes, governments are taking on, have taken on a large amount of debt. And it does raise a concern, because as part of the approach to having our economy recover from the financial crisis 2008 and the pandemic of 2020, 
was to drive interest rates down to zero. And when interest rates are zero, money is free. So mm. why not borrow? It doesn't cost anything. And governments did. Some corporations also wisely took advantage of low interest rates and consumers as well. But governments took on a lot. And now as interest rates have gone up by in the U.S. five full percentage points in a year, a little over a year, it's gone from zero. The federal funds rate has gone essentially from zero to five and a quarter in maybe a year and a half or less than a year and a half. And all of a sudden, as governments roll over their debt, yes, the debt they took out at 0% or 1% or a half percent now has to be refinanced at 5%. And all of a sudden, wow, that's a huge interest bill to be paid. And I guess one way of addressing this over time is maybe reducing the budget deficit over time. <laughs> and of course, that gets into political issues. How do you do that? Do you uh, raise additional revenue? Do you cut spending? Try to cut down on the budget deficit? And that's for, for again, future financial and, and monetary policy to address. Yeah, such a such a you know challenging time. And I remember when I was young and getting out of university and then working in the field, I really railed against government debt, and I felt like excessive government debt, you know, was just such a bad thing. But I never, ever would have thought it would got to this level where it is pretty much unstoppable. I mean, any and there's no Republican or Democrat that's going to go in and say, we want to cut spending by 50% and get this budget deficit, you know, into surplus or into a small deficit. I can't imagine anybody going and saying that. And the, the population can't handle it. But yet the cost of the interest is just rising till we're going to be at, you know, a trillion dollars in interest expense. It just like it just has to someday just blow up, I guess. I, I really don't know. Yeah, again, there will have to be major changes. And certainly in the United States, a big chunk of the budget and on the social program, Social Security, Medicare, as examples, there could be ways of addressing it, such as as the population, for example, is living longer then maybe Social Security payments would, you have to wait to an older age to start yeah. receiving payments. And maybe again with Medicare and Social Security, to some extent, maybe it's already happening, have these basically based on your income, those who have the ability to pay on their own, so to speak, would have, you know, in essence, pay higher Medicare taxes or Social Security taxes or, or be less eligible less qualified or receive lower benefits because mm. they're higher incomes so that it could be addressed that way but it was i think in the late 90s in the united states so we're talking 25 years ago roughly i believe the budget for a year or two a couple of years was balanced under clinton under, under a democrat clinton. absolutely under president clinton it was balanced but if we were able to do it in the 90s i i think we could get back there gradually over time as well well, let's hope. I think this highlights the number one question for my clients in Thailand, as well as for clients around the world and investors around the world. It's like, do I buy the US dollar to buy US treasury to buy US stocks? Or am I exposing myself to some kind of currency risk? And I think so far, it's been a good deal to buy the US dollar to be able to buy you know, good performing stocks and, and the like. But that's definitely the question on everybody's mind outside of the U.S. Sure. And I think the dollar is likely to remain the reserve currency for many years to come. Because mm. right now I'm not aware of any good alternative. Things could change over decades or something. But certainly in the foreseeable future, I think the world has more confidence in the U.S. dollar than any other single currency. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I mean, it takes time. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. We waited a long time because we had a great conversation. But if you could just maybe, you know, what I always say is no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be. Maybe tell us about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, the circumstances. Uh, I'm young, <laughs> in my early 20s, as I recall. Investing in the stock market. Well, I got started actually at a fairly young age. 
I had the good fortune actually start as an investor in the stock market at age 12, courtesy of my grandfather, who gave me a gift of five shares of a $20 stock. And since then, I started following the market. But I'm now, let's fast forward 10 years or so. I'm in my early 20s. I'm investing, I'm working, and I'm earning some money, investing in the stock market. And I believe the year was 1969. And the stock market was doing reasonably well at the time. And there was a stock that caught my attention. And back then, every day in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, or Financial News, they would list the 10 most active stocks of the day by number of shares traded. It wasn't necessarily the the largest stocks like Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera. It was just what stock was being actively traded. And near the top of the list was this company called Scientific Resources. It had a common stock and a preferred stock. It was a computer software company And I noticed that the preferred stock was paying a 9% dividend. And I said, wow, I can earn 9%. At that time, I didn't understand the relationship between risk and return, that if the average stock in the stock market then may have been paying an average dividend of, say, 3 Back then, the average dividend may have been 3%. Cash dividends were a little higher, more prevalent. Stock Companies back then did not buy back their shares. They returned capital to shareholders through a cash dividend. Today, it's somewhat different, primarily stock buybacks. But back then, the average cash dividend was 3 3.5%. Here's a stock paying 9%. Wow. So I run out and I buy, I don't know if it was 100 shares at $20 a share, which is probably all the money, $2,000. All the money they had to invest at the time, maybe. And then it started going down every day. It was actively traded. I didn't have to look very far to get the price. And then as a shareholder, back then, I received this mailing, just the timing, very interesting. Once a year, shareholders are asked to vote under SEC rules. I get a proxy statement from the company and a ballot to vote for senior management or other issues that came up. And I open up, I look at the proxy statement. Within the proxy statement, it shows stock ownership by senior executives of the company. This is standard in every stock proxy through today. And it was true back then. And I open it up, I turn a few pages, and I look at the chairman of the board, number of shares owned, Zero. (laughs) CEO, number of shares owned, zero. Executive vice president, and all the way down, it listed six or eight executives. Not a single one owned any shares. And I said, "Uh uh-oh, this doesn't look right. Uh Uh-oh, why should I, as an outsider, invest all of my $2,000 when the insiders who, and their salaries, I think, may have been also given in the proxies mm. as well. So they're earning a lot, let's say, a lot more than I am or was at the time. Why aren't they invested? And I found out soon enough that as a stock, I think I bought it at 20, finally sold it at about two. As it went down to zero, it was an accounting fraud and went down to zero and lesson learned a very big lesson don't invest in a company unless senior executives and i focus on the ceo i focus number one on the ceo if the ceo does not have a large stake in the company then run away go away and i and by large stake and in fact i wrote an article Mm. actually i published an article I was asked to comment. I was at a conference uh, around 1986, and I published an article, and the title of it is Anti-Takeover Measures, Obstructions to the Market for Corporate Control. And it was published in Contemporary Policy Issues, July 1986. And in that article, I came up with my own measure, and I related this 
my own measure that as CEO, that I formed a ratio of the current stock market value, the value of the CEO stock in his own company to his annual salary. And I think I came over the ratio, it should be at least three to one or five to one, something in that nature. You know, if it isn't at least say three to one, then run away. Do not be careful. Be careful. And the stock could still work out. It's not necessarily a problem, but be really careful. And usually what I found, and I wrote a little bit in this article, where CEO is deriving most of his wealth or income from the company via his salary, then his interests are not aligned with shareholders. Only if he owns a large stake in the company would his interests be aligned with shareholders and therefore taking actions that like maximize shareholder value, which means maximizing shareholder price. Mm. But if it's not there, then all the manager wants to do is hold on to his job and maximize his salary income and there you'll find, and I found, I, I think I mentioned a couple of examples, companies like that, when there was a takeover bid, this is the gist of the article I wrote, when there's a takeover bid, then they'll take various defenses, like all poison pill, crown jewels, sell off the best division, and then I can keep my job, whoever's coming after me will go after this other division. It's like called a Pac-Man defense, golden parachute. For example, in case I'm taking over, the company's got to pay me $100 million. Mm. And that adds $100 million to the cost of a takeover. And you're certainly not acting in the best interest of your shareholders. So the lesson I learned from there, as my $2,000 essentially went down to zero, was look carefully at proxy statements. Make sure the CEO and other senior managers have skin in the game that their interests are likely aligned with yours. They have a large stake through their stock holdings. And that was a lesson I learned at a very young age. And it still applies today. And today, it's a lot easier to check this. Back then, we didn't have the internet. If you wanted to find out, wanted to look at a proxy statement, you couldn't go online to the SEC, look <laughs> at the latest filing. You had to probably call the company, ask them to send you their proxy statement or write them a letter and maybe two weeks later you get something in the mail. Now it's very easy. Now anyone could just go on the internet, go to the company's investor relations website and look at their SEC filings, look at their proxy statement they should have for every year or alternatively go online to the SEC directly through their Edgar database and you could, within minutes today, you could have access to this information, which back then may have taken days or weeks to obtain. But certainly, this is information that is critical and something that I think was, at least back then, totally ignored. I hope investors have learned something over the years from this. Well, I think we've got a masterclass from your corporate finance teaching because I know this is part of the agency theory of the concept of, you know, when you're investing in something, you're counting on that person, the CEO or others to represent your interests. And if they're not, you know, aligned with that, then you've got a problem. And I'm sure you you do a lot of teaching about that type of stuff in the in your course. Yes, I do. And we do indeed discuss agency theory and conflicts of interest. And does the CEO really look out for others or just himself or herself, as the case may be? And this does, I think, illustrate this issue quite well. Yep. I have a private investment in a company that I've owned for now 28 years, a coffee business with my best friend. And we both own an equal amount, though he runs the business. And it just comforts me every day to know that we both and him in particular has a huge stake in making sure that our business is successful and growing over the long run. And so that type of alignment is what, you know, we want when we're investing and you're never going to get that type of alignment in the public markets because, you know, the, the original owners are going to be diluted down, but still some alignment is critical. Right. Well, yeah. Absolutely. 
you know, the market for corporate control, yes. And, you know, the original founders of, of a business, you know, gets diluted over time when they're no longer there. And then the professional managers come in who might be more interested in their own careers and their own personal wealth than they are. They don't have the original stake in the business or emotional stake mm. as well as financial stake in the business that the founders had. So let me ask you, what's a resource that you'd recommend? I mean, you've got stuff that you've done. There's so many different things that you've read that you've experienced for a young person who's learning about investing. What would be your recommendation? Okay, what I recommend, again, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett, so I'm going to come back to Warren Buffett. I think the best reading material, I think it's basically the book you just pulled off the shelf at the outset, Letters to Shareholders, you're holding up 1965 to 2014. I think that's the best <laughs> visual book to read. And of course, the letters since 2014 are available online for free at BerkshireHathaway.com. Warren Buffett has said each of his letters are written so his sister could understand them and his sister has no background in finance. So if his sister can understand, it's basically written for anyone to understand where he's explaining the economics and finance, not only of Berkshire, which he certainly focuses on, but on the overall economy. Mm. They are really excellent lessons to be learned and gives examples of mismanagement, good management, and I think as you go through this, I think that those letters are over time are better than any textbook that I'm aware of, any one book that one can read. There are various books, like Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett's favorite books that he refers to, and you can certainly learn something from there. Mm. But even there, they're just, you know, to me, they're just a drop in the bucket compared right. to the wisdom that's conveyed by Warren Buffett year after year. And just going through, the again, the, the 50 letters of the book you held up. Yep. And then going online right now, you can, I guess, get the last 30 years or so, or more that are available right now online yep. for free. Just go to Letters to Shareholders. Each letter, by the way, in recent years, uh, I guess maybe because of Warren Buffett's age, uh, he's 92. At the moment, or shortly it'll be 93. It's getting a little shorter. Recent years, his letters have been reduced to maybe 15 pages down from maybe 25 pages a few years back. But even when they were at 25 pages, they were very readable. And mm -hmm. he has lots of humor. Yeah. He puts in a lot of humor into his writings, as he does when he meets with students. I brought students to me with him on four separate occasions. The first one we referred to earlier that it was a student who initiated that first visit, but then I became sort of a liaison between my university and, and Berkshire. And right through 2016, since 2016, Warren Buffett unfortunately no longer meets with students, but it's understandable given his age. Yep. And you know, it, it's just, even in those meetings, especially in those meetings, he is just very funny. You know, he'll he'll give examples like the best way to learn. In fact, he'll tell students you can read a book about investing, but you don't really experience the emotion of investing until you put your own money into a stock and you experience the feeling, the exhilaration maybe when it goes up, and let's say the sick feeling when it goes down <laughs> to really experience that and deal with it and control your emotion then you find out then you really learn about investing so in addition to reading his letters i would encourage young people people starting out investing when they have some money that they're available to invest certainly go ahead and invest and then follow your company your stock or your fund it could be uh, an S&P 500 index fund, which incidentally Warren Buffett recommends for almost everybody. 
and just experience the emotion of ups and downs mm. and understand a little bit about what investing is about. Great. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, my number one goal, I guess, for me is to uh, continue what I'm doing, continue teaching, certainly at the Smith School of Business, University of Maryland in finance, and to uh, certainly follow. It's a very interesting, challenging situation economically. I I have both the macroeconomic background as well as the finance or micro, more of the microeconomic and financial analysis perspective as well. Certainly following developments over the next year, can the U.S., for example, avoid a recession over the next year? Will inflation be successfully brought down? Federal Reserve in the U.S. has a 2% goal for inflation. Can that goal be achieved? Will interest rates have to go much higher to achieve it? If they do go much higher, will there be much higher unemployment leading to a recession? Or can we have something called a soft landing in which inflation can be brought down without a recession, without too much pain in the economy? We have right now the unemployment rate of around 3.5%, which is the lowest it's been in 50 years. Mm. It's hard. I don't remember any recession where you're having historically low unemployment. Mm. Usually, with no recession, unemployment is quite high five, six, seven percent or higher. In 1980, I remember back in the early 80s, we had double digit inflation and double digit unemployment. Things were really bad back then. Now they're relatively calm. But what will happen over the next 12 months? And of course, there are always external shocks, the war in Ukraine is an example. What what will happen there? Will there be another external shock there? There's some concern, certainly uh, in Asia. Will there mm-hmm. be any uh, geopolitical risk in Asia? Could that lead to a major situation similar to Ukraine? What will, impact will that have on the world? So there's always the world is a risky place. You're going to have a busy 12 months, David. Yes. Yeah. So uh, things, uh, one never gets bored just following what's going on in the world. Exactly. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, David, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. (laughs) Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, thank you very much. I I hope uh, the audience can learn something from my mistake, as well as Warren Buffett's mistakes as well, trying to be unemotional, trying to learn from other mistakes. And certainly as Warren Buffett has said this, I think you said it yourself, it is better to learn from others' mistakes rather than to have to learn from your own mistakes. So I hope this session has been quite educational for everyone. It definitely has. And that's the whole premise of this show. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.